Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're joined by a repeat guest, Dr. Marty McCary, who ha has a prestigious position at the uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he's a professor of surgery, a full professor of surgery. And uh, we interviewed him about six years ago for his previous book, which, is, which was called Unacceptable. And now he's written a new book, which is really fascinating. It's called the price we pay. And it delves deeply into some of the profoundly dis, uh, serious, comp, uh, dis, serious problems that we have in our healthcare system, especially as it relates to the financing of it. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. Yeah, so before we start, I thought it would be wise to frame the, the, the institution that you're associated with, Johns Hopkins, and your, your training, because I, most people watching this probably aren't aware of what a prestigious hospital that is. I mean, the US News and World Report, which is a pretty objective barometer of making judgments in this area, because uh, many media sources are not, uh, especially when it comes to health. We know that for sure, Wikipedia and uh, Google being the classic examples, uh, has rated uh, your institution the top hospital in the entire country, not just once or twice, but 22 out of the last 28 years. So, you know, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, so maybe you can expand on that for a bit, for a bit just to know what, what your, your foundation is coming from. It's a real special place. I love working at Johns Hopkins. The people are phenomenal. Um, and at the same time, we have a, a really great platform to push the field of medicine. The field needs to be pushed in certain ways. And so I think this has always been a place of innovation, of leadership, of boldness, and in changing the way we practice medicine. So I love being here and there's a lot of sort of outside the box thinkers uh, here. So it's, it's um, great to connect with you, Dr. Mercola. I know you like to push the field as well. There's a healthy skepticism that people need to uh, have when it comes to, hey, this just got uh, invented. This just came to market. Um, it's totally safe. And we need to say, hey, wait a minute, nothing is totally safe. And can we do better? And where are the blind spots in healthcare? Right? We're just now learning that Roundup, a pesticide that's been used for decades, uh, probably causes leukemia and lymphoma. So these are blind spots that public health traditionally takes decades to catch up on in terms of the science of studying uh, uh, new innovations in society. So yeah. it's a great place and really excited to be on your show again. So uh, I neglected to mention that not only you're a professor of surgery, but you also have an MPH, a Master's of Public Health, which I suspect plays a large factor in why you're uh, following these types of pursuits, because the, the traditional surgeon is certainly not going to be doing what you've done. So, uh, but let's get back to Johns Hopkins, just finish that up, because it's been around for 150 years, and it's, it's a, probably the best, one of the best examples of what the reasons why hospitals were founded. They were founded for altruistic reasons to serve their local community. And that mission 
over the last 150 years, not of Johns Hopkins, but of hospitals in general, and there's certainly not all, but many of them, and you can perhaps comment on what your, your investigation show, has been absolutely perverted. And the mission is not to serve the health of the community anymore, it's to, it's to generate revenues. So, which is beyond frustrating because it, this, I have nothing wrong with institutions earning income, but they can't abandon their primary mission. And in so many cases, not just hospitals, not just pointing the, the pink finger at hospitals, but certainly so many ancillary healthcare institutions are doing this. And the, the, the examples you provide in your book are nothing short of mind blowing. Hospitals were founded to be a safe haven for the sick and injured of a community, regardless of one's race, creed, or ability to pay. That is the great American medical heritage. That's what the charters say. Most hospitals were started by churches, funded by donors, and they had an incredible sense of equality. And who else besides clinicians, doctors, nurses, you name it, have a sense of the equality of human beings because we are witnesses of both birth and death. And so hospitals have an incredible heritage. And I am deeply concerned that that great public trust is now being eroded by price gouging and by inappropriate care. And that's why I decided to write this book, The Price We Pay. I'm particularly curious what your personal motivations were for this investigative exploration that you embarked on. It took quite a few years to compile the information that you did. And, uh, you know, what was the motivation? Obviously, you have an MPH, so you, you've got the perspective of looking at the fundamental reasons why people or communities get sick. But, you know, why would you pursue this? I mean, you're, you're a professor of surgery. I mean, this is, seems, would seem to be out of your, your field of interest. Well, my father, who is a hematologist, always told me that the primary role of a physician is to be an advocate for the vulnerable, for the voiceless. And right now, there are a lot of opinions about why healthcare costs so much. And there's a massive blame game going on. And I really wanted to take the business of medicine and summarize it in a, in a consumable way so that anybody could read this book, The Price We Pay, and leave feeling like I finally understand how the money games of medicine work. I personally was blown away by the movie The Big Short, if you've seen that movie. It took the, the very complicated and even boring subject of, the, of banking and made it interesting, consumable in story form, and you leave that movie feeling like I now understand exactly the money games that were being played and I understand the solutions. And so that's what I wanted to do in the price we pay is make people literate when it comes to healthcare. You know, we as physicians, Dr. McCullough, you know, from medical school, we're taught medical literacy. We're never taught healthcare literacy. And it turns out the special interests that fed us the food pyramid and all of this stuff was driven on bad science and um, you know, dirty deals. And today the money games are crushing everyday folks. I mean, what good are, are the chemotherapy cures that we have if a quarter of the public doesn't trust us and won't come in to be treated? And right now there are studies showing that a quarter of patients with diabetes admit to having rationed their insulin. And half of women with stage four breast cancer report being harassed by medical debt collectors. And on the tour for this book, I met patients who said, I'm at home sick and scared to go to the hospital because last time I went, they sued me 
uh, and garnish my wages. Yeah, we definitely want to go into more details on that. But it, it's interesting that you mentioned that patients are now rationing their insulin. I haven't seen patients for over 10 years now, but the last time I was seeing them, insulin was not that expensive. It was maybe 20 or 30, $40 for month supply. And now it's several hundred dollars and nothing has changed in the ability to produce it. One would think it do the scales and efficiencies and price would be lower, but no, it's gone literally 10 times higher. And this is not just, I mean, for a life saving medication. And I think you go into in your book for the, the inventor of this, which it was, uh, Banting, I believe, um, d donated the patent for this so that everyone could have access to it. And now we've got predatory pharmaceutical companies exploiting this life-saving medication and people having to ration it. You know, who, who, I mean, their very life depends on it. So, I, look, you're absolutely right. That, that patent was sold for $1. The patent for polio was sold was for free. It was, and he said, I will not put a patent on the polio vaccine, even though all sorts of business people were telling him to do so in the 1950s. He saw 20,000 people um, in the United States in an iron lung machine for polio. And he said, this is the property of mankind. No one should own it. It will be a gift to humanity. You talk about great medical patriots in society. Talk about Benjamin Rush. I mean, we have an incredible heritage and so I think, um, you know, to be sort of amused by the money games of medicine or to finally crack the code and understand it as I tried to, to unlock in the book, The Price We Pay, that's one thing. But you want to do something, right? The soul longs for a sense of purpose and justice. And I feel like people want to do something. So there are things that are very actionable that we can do that are not just writing your congressman. There are you know, business leaders in America that are routinely getting ripped off on their pharmacy benefit plans or what we call their PBM. Um, people are buying health insurance the wrong way. And those are the things that are highly actionable where if we collectively demand price transparency, if we demand uh, a stop to the collusion among um, generic com uh, drug companies that jack up the prices, if we demand better deals on our business health plans and pharmacy plans, we can do a lot better. Look at GoodRx. Look at the good that company has done. Mm -hmm. A simple app that allows you to find the real world prices outside of insurance. And oftentimes it's less than what that pharmacy benefit plan that you might have tells you to buy it at. Yes, indeed. So let's go uh, now to some of the illustrations that uh, really describe some of the processes you're uh, mentioning. Uh, and I think the, the best one to start with is the predatory practices that I think that were in Texas and some, the differences between two small towns when one was essentially manipulating the legal system to extort and use the justice system to essentially bankrupt like a quarter to a half of the town for, for what they perceived as important medical services. I mean, they're like their life depended on it. And, and essentially, they get bills for $20,000, $40,000. And these are people making $10, $15 an hour. So it, it was just in such a revelation that that chapter in the book was right at the beginning, I believe. Yeah, so, you know, it blows me away as a physician that somebody could come to us for medical care as physicians. We take care of them. And then the middleman industry, the hospital sort of corporate interest goes after and shakes people down sues them in court to garnish their paycheck, which sometimes is a minimum wage paycheck. We saw it all over. We saw it in 
at, in Virginia, we just had a study come out in JAMA that shows that 36% uh, of Virginia hospitals sue patients and 10% of them will just sue the crap out of, out of the patients. Uh, one hospital we found sued 24,000 patients in a town that by census data only has 28,000 people in it. And there's another hospital in town and presumably not everyone's getting sick every year. Look, this is the most despicable and egregious loss of our mission in medicine. It erodes the public trust. It, it affects every patient everywhere in the country who, who feels afraid. And I met um, patients like Wanda Brooks who had an unnecessary CAT scan, an unnecessary MRI, which charged over $8,000, was taken to court, garnished. She's the single mom of two kids and actually works taking care of patients. I mean, is that how we treat our own? So um, we called attention to this. We got NPR in town. They did a story on it. Um, it's on our restoringmedicine.org website. And sure enough, two days later, the hospital announced they are going to stop suing patients. Same with Methodist Hospital. ProPublica reporter Wendy there did a story two days later um, after they had received a letter from me and my research team that I sent to the CEO and board reminding them of our mission, of their mission, reminding them of why we all went into healthcare to take care of people and help people. They announced they're gonna stop suing patients. But it, it shouldn't be left to individuals to call out hospitals. We need a mass effort to say, can we restore medicine to its goal of serving communities, helping patients when they're vulnerable, and being kind and compassionate? And you do see it. You do see disruptors. You see hospitals that are good, be good actors. And um, we want to reward them. And that's really what I try to do in the book is tell the, the problem in the first half of every chapter and the second half of every chapter it, are the innovators who are disrupting healthcare, restoring medicine to its mission, and just super bright spots that are, I think, very exciting. Yeah, and I want to make it clear, too, that uh, in these hospitals that were manipulating these prices, charging you know, ten, five to 10 times the going rate for, for a service that frequently wasn't even needed and, and essentially suing these patients to bankruptcy. The physicians who provided that service were not in collusion with the hospital. In most cases, they had no idea what was going on. They were paid employees and they had no influence over those decisions. So. You know, that, why don't you speak to that because that's an, an interesting component and some people may confuse and, and not understand that there's a difference here. Yeah, the doctors were unaware of these very aggressive and even predatory pricing practices. Um, you know, I think, look, people that go into healthcare at every level do it for noble reasons, right? You look at our students, they have an incredible passion to take care of people. They have no idea this stuff is happening. They have no idea their patients are getting shaken down on the back end. And once they find out, um, they want to stop it. So we're trying to tap into that interest. Um, if you think about that story of Wanda Brooks, um, she had unnecessary care and then was shaken down and harassed financially to the point of having her paycheck garnished for an overpriced bill. When I offer to be the expert medical doctor on their court case when they're sued for wage garnishment, 100% of these cases get dropped. Why? Because the hospitals are afraid of discovery that their charge master calculation would have to be disclosed. And ultimately, many of these hospitals say we're going to stop. 
How is it, how is it, Dr. McCullough, that two Harvard hospitals both deliver babies with high quality, but one charges 41,000 and another Harvard hospital charges 8,000? That's the negotiated rate with insurance. That's not some special carve out. How is it that one guy at the University of Iowa called around 100 heart surgery programs in the United States and asked them, how much does it cost for open heart surgery? And 50 could not give him an answer. The 50 that did gave him all kinds of numbers ranging from 40,000 to half a million dollars. He then took those prices that he was given, correlated it with the quality outcomes database, which is from the STS, Society of Thoracic Surgeons, the most mature quality outcomes database in healthcare, and found no correlation. There was no correlation between high prices and quality. There was no correlation between high prices and charity care, which is the sort of reflex you know, explanation that we're often given when we see it, one hospital charges 10 times what another hospital charges. Does a, the hospital at Vail have so much charity care from uninsured skiers that they have to jack up their prices? No, they are charging as much as the market will allow. And I think we need to remind them of their mission and remind them of why we all went into medicine. Yeah, I think you would give a really interesting analogy in the book, and maybe it wasn't in your book, somewhere else, but it's, it's almost like going into the grocery store and purchasing food, say produce, an apple, a head of lettuce, and it's in a box that you cannot open, you cannot look at, and further yet, the, there's, they're not gonna tell you the price until after you bought it, and then you can look at it. Yeah. We, we actually get resistance on price transparency on a policy level, because we've taken this issue to all the policymakers in Washington, D.C., and we actually have people saying, like the American Hospital Association, on the record in the Washington Post, that price transparency will have the ultimate anti-competitive effect. I mean, it's almost like a Jedi mind trick, right? They're scared because they know <laughs> this is what we need. This is honest medicine. That's all it is. When somebody comes in, we can't give them a price. We, medical centers, university, academic hospitals are the bastion of scientific genius. We can't tell you what something costs. I mean, the solution is embarrassingly simple. And I think none of us would tolerate shopping for an airline flight on a you know, website like Kayak or Travelocity and seeing no prices and let the insurance companies say, trust us, we'll bill you after the flight and you know, we just can't give you a price because it's impossible. We don't know if there's gonna be <laughs> turbulence in the air that might be more work for the pilots. It could get canceled. We don't know if you're gonna consume a beverage and so we just can't give you a price ahead of time. And of course, it, it's total nonsense. Nobody is suggesting that we doctors, we surgeons give you a price if you're shot in the heart and need a, you know, emergent trauma. No one's, being, no one's being ridiculous. But guess what? 60 plus percent of all medical care is shoppable and we should be able to provide a price. And if we did, I think you'd see incredible efficiency. You'd see prices come down universally and you'd see an ushering in of quality transparency, which is the other piece of it. So let's finish up on that because it's a really important point. And I'm wondering what you would recommend to someone watching this, where there 
considering undergoing an elective procedure. It's not life or death. It's not a trauma and they need immediate care and they have an opportunity or the leeway to, or the, the uh, opportunity to have more time to essentially shop around. So what advice would you recommend to someone in that situation so that they can find a reasonable uh, rate for the service they're, they're seeking to uh, consider? You know, it's sort of like going to a restaurant. If everybody asks if the, uh, if the meat is grass-fed, if the food's organic, if, um, you know, if they, everybody's asking, the market will respond to that demand. But and, you know, excuse me for interrupting, but if you go to the restaurant and they ask them, they can tell you it's grass-fed and lie to you in your face and there's no penalty for doing it. Absolutely. None. Zero. None. It's, it's a big problem. And so I'll tell you, I've, I've learned to shop at um, grocery stores where they can actually show you the farm. There's transparency. You trust them. You, you understand the ethic. And I think there's a big growth right now. And, but we've got to create demand for prices and we've got to create demand for quality. So ask, if we all ask a million times, guess what? There's technology companies now that are working on ways for doctors to show you the price when they're actually ordering a test or a medication or something like that. Um, so if there's enough demand, we're going to see a response. I'm trying to encourage employers to, you know, create, work with um, TPAs that create networks that have offer price transparency. There's a surgery center in Oklahoma and one in Texas and other places that will offer you a, a menu of prices for services and, you know, we should give them our, your business. If they have high quality and transparent pricing, let's drive the marketplace. Um, President Trump signed an executive order trying, uh, getting at the secret negotiated prices between insurance companies and hospitals. That would create more price transparency. There's a lot of things we can do to help drive this, but everyday folks need to ask and ask again, um, what is the price for, for def definable, predictable services? And I think you'll see the market move. Good. It's absolutely what we need. Uh, I, I want to get back to some of these egregious examples you cite in the book of abuse of pricing in, in the healthcare system. And, but before I do that, I just want to make another comment too on the uh, hospitals that were suing these individuals and that when you and your team went into the court system, you found out that it was the vast majority, I think it was even over 90% of the cases that were being seen in that court system in that town were hospitals suing the patients. Yeah, I mean, the courthouse got transformed into a taxpayer-funded collections agency. And there was literally, in, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, a section of the courthouse dedicated to the hospital cases. And you walk right in, there's a sign, hey, if you're being sued by this hospital, go to the second floor. And then you get there, hospital lawsuits, go to this room. And the hospital sets up almost like a field office of their finance and billing people to get you on these so-called payment plans, which, by the way, be careful of payment plans, right? If a bill is marked up five times more than what anyone else would pay, and they offer you a 2% discount or a 10% discount, 10% discount off a bill marked up 500% is not fair, and it sometimes um, commits you to uh, payment plans. Look, we need honest and fair transparent pricing, just like we have GoodRx and other tools I point out in the drug space. You can look up price, the reference-based price at Healthcare Blue Book, and Fair Health and other tools that I point out in the book, The Price We Pay, you should be able to find out what the going market price is for a service. And FYI, if you didn't already know this, 
Hospital bills are often highly negotiable, especially before you get the service. Yes, the, the key is, as you mentioned before, if, if you can get them to agree to uh, a price, that would be the best strategy. But let, let's go on some of these other egregious examples, uh, specifically your transportation to the hospital. You know, if, after you read that section, you realize that unless you're seriously injured, that it's probably best to take an Uber to the hospital and get charged $25 instead of several thousands or tens of thousands in a, in, a, in a regular ambulance. And if you need more sophisticated transport, like you need to be transported by a helicopter, boy, those, I mean, I just dropped out, almost fell down when I read that some of these companies were charging people a half a million dollars, $500,000 to transport them between hospitals in, a, in, a, in an ambulance. It was just crazy. Almost the price of the aircraft itself. Yes. I mean, for, and what it is, it's, it's just pure price gouging, right? We have to be careful of, you know, private equity has moved in and bought uh, fleets of, of air ambulance helicopters at hospitals. They're buying primary care practices like crazy radiology centers. There's nothing wrong with profit. I'm, I believe in the American system. But uh, the pure goal of consolidating for market domination and then price gouging, as we've seen with drugs and in medical care, uh, is something that we need to call out. It's un-American, it's unfair, and you, we have to remember that hospitals were founded mostly by churches to be a refuge for the sick and injured, charities to serve a community. And many of these groups do not pay taxes, so we have to you know, remind people of their mission, and that's what we're doing at restoringmedicine.org. The air ambulance example is egregious, and my colleague here at Hopkins, G. Bai, just published a paper in Health Affairs showing just how egregious it can be. We get these stories that come across my desk all the time, a quarter million dollars, a half million dollars for a flight off a ski mountain. Look, if it's not emergent, I couldn't agree with you more. If it's not emergent, if it's clearly something where minutes don't matter and you can take a regular ground transport or an Uber or a friend taking, if you really believe that it's not emergent, uh, beware of the predatory air ambulance industry. According to experts, 75 to 80% of air transport is for routine and non-emergent care. Sometimes, of course, you don't know, and you may, you may want to play it safe and take the faster transport. Air ambulances do save lives. But, you know, for the love of humanity, gouging people when they break their leg on a ski mountain with a quarter million dollar bill, uh, keep in mind that Uber and Lyft and, um, gr you know, ground transportation can uh, be sufficient if it's non-emergent. And interestingly, it, I, I would wager that in many cases, they would be at your home before the ambulance. <laughs> it's just because of the sheer numbers of those vehicles, and there's a limited number of, of ambulances. Well, I don't know if you saw the part in the book uh, where there was literally an accident scene where one victim was there, and seven hospitals, seven air ambulance helicopters showed up on the scene to try to get the business. And the TV show, The Resident, did a nice job sort of reenacting uh, that situation. But I mean, you know, look, we're supposed to take care of people and not gouge them. Where do you think all this money is going that we're paying for in health insurance premiums? You know, when people say, oh, I didn't have to pay my insurance paid. 
No, guess what? That is you paying, right? We're all paying in health insurance premiums. Yes, indeed. And uh, you had mentioned these private equity firms came in and bought out these air ambulance companies and created their own. And there's no question they made a significant investment and they have to pay the physicians and the technicians. And there's a certain amount of cost involved. But it's important to understand that prior to their coming into this, that the hospitals were routinely providing the service for $1,000 or $2,000 and adding it to their bill. These air ambulance companies are not paid by insurance. They're charged to the patient with no coverage by insurance, and they use the same legal structure as the hospitals were doing to sue the patients in court. And the hospitals were doing a good job managing their air ambulance programs. They were run by doctors. They were run by the local paramedics. They cared about the community. Um, you know, I'm, I'm seriously concerned about the new business model of healthcare, which is if you can take something off the master hospital bill and bill separately, bill out of network, you can make more money. You can collect more. We're talking about labs being billed separately and diagnostic testing and out-of-network physician services, and air ambulance transport. All this stuff used to be on the master hospital bill, but if there's one game in medicine, it's been if you can take things off that master bill, you can collect more. Some insurance company, some poor patient, some Amish person is gonna just pay the full bill because that's what they believe is honest, and you can get more if you bill separately. And unfortunately, a lot of people are getting rich but everyday Americans are getting hammered right now. I mean, I met folks, uh, nurses, single moms, teachers, farmers, they are not profiting from the healthcare system. They are getting milked right now. And I think we need to keep in mind that while the blame game is going around in healthcare, the two underlying root causes of our healthcare cost crisis that I identified in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay, are pricing failures, and inappropriate care. A national survey of 2,100 physicians that we conducted at Johns Hopkins through my research team, randomly selected physicians, we asked them the question, what percent of medical care is unnecessary? They said 21% as the average answer. They broke it down in medications and diagnostic tests and procedures. Now, when you have a fifth of all the people in an industry saying that or, uh, uh, people in the industry saying that a fifth of all the services are unnecessary. Look, that is a crisis. Isn't the opioid crisis one manifestation of the crisis of appropriateness of, of our inappropriate care problem? Look, 10 years ago, we physicians prescribed in the United States 2.4 billion prescriptions. Last year, it hit 5 billion. Now, did disease double in the last 10 years? No, we have a crisis of appropriateness. The opioid crisis is a part of the crisis of appropriateness. And if we look collectively at the broader problem of inappropriate care, people being prescribed opioids they don't need, people falling through the cracks, fragmented networks, poor coordination of care, mistakes made in the hospital, either system mistakes or individual mistakes, Collectively, it may represent the third or fourth leading cause of death in the United States. These are real issues. They're avoidable. These are manufactured problems. In public health, there are two types of crises. There are naturally occurring crises in the environment, things like Ebola, and then there are manufactured crises. 
Many of the big crises that we face in healthcare today are manufactured. They are the obesity crisis and the smoking crisis and the pricing cost crisis and the opioid crisis. These are manufactured crises. So you had mentioned that uh, the physicians were uh, polled as to what they believe was inappropriate and it was 20%. I would wager that it's, it's significantly higher, probably well over 50%. If, if you extend the, the inappropriate ter, uh, the definition to treatments that aren't really addressing the cause. But I'm wondering, even within that 20%, what do you think the primary cause is? I mean, there's two obvious answers. One is just greed and ignorance. And the other is potentially justifiable, which is uh, a defensive medicine. And to order tests, which the physician knows isn't needed, but they know, know equally that if this case ever went to a lawsuit, that they would be grilled uh, for not having done this uh, diagnostic intervention. Yeah, and certainly, you know, I've talked to, it's different in every area of medicine, right? So I think that in spine surgery, I've heard really good spine surgeons at national meetings come up to me and say, Marty, I know you're interested in this subject of inappropriate care. Do you know that half of all of spine surgery in the United States that's elective is unnecessary? Now, look, Dr. McCullough, I'm not a spine surgeon, okay? I'm a GI and cancer surgeon. I don't know if he's right when this spine surgeon told me that, but many people at the national meeting who are spine surgeons full-time told me the same thing that 40, 50, 60% of spine surgery in the United States that's elective is unnecessary. I don't know if they're right, but if they are, we have a serious crisis of appropriateness. By the way, it's one of the most expensive things in all of healthcare is spine surgery. Hmm. What's that was a typical cost of a case? Oh, a single case, you could be charged 40 to $100,000 for a single case. Hospitals have said, we want to build spine surgery at our hospital because it's such a big revenue builder. You have job descriptions for heads of neurosurgery in the country that say we are recruiting someone to build a spine surgery center. Now, do they have a, does that hospital have a special heart for people suffering with spinal tumors over other conditions? No, look, these are massive profit centers. And when you have people in the field saying that half, up to half are unnecessary, look, we might have a serious crisis of appropriateness in that area. Now, you know, is a labor and is a baby delivery unnecessary? No, the, you know, it's much lower when it comes to baby delivery, but C-section rates are far too high in the United States. How do you explain, as I found in the research for the price we pay, one doctor had a C-section rate of 60% and another doctor had a C-section rate of 14%. And of course, the doctor with the higher C-section rate, what do you think he said when he had to explain his 60%? well, my patients are more complicated and different and sicker. Well, guess what? They all took random nights of call in the hospital. So the sick people don't come in on Mondays and Thursdays, right? And his rate, by the way, on Fridays was about 100%. So we, look, we can do better. There's tremendous waste in certain areas of medicine. I truly believe, I work with incredible people. I love my job. Doctors, nurses, clinicians, they're good people, right? They go into medicine for great reasons, but the system is messed up. The incentives are malaligned. We 
you know, create all this moral injury and sometimes entitlement. Um, and people come out, burn out, they see a safe procedure, they get good at it, they inflate the benefits and sort of degrade the uh, complications in their mind. They truly believe they're safe and they just start, you know, overdoing things and you start adding big money on the table. Sometimes, uh, you know, to answer your question, it is the profit motive. Sometimes the doctors told us in the national survey, it's the consumerist mentality that patients come in demanding things being done, right? Demanding a, an MRI, demanding an antibiotic. Look, if you're taking your kid in and the doctor, the pediatrician says, or the family doctor says, they've got a viral infection, I don't recommend we do anything except for, you know, sit this out and follow it and support it and watch it. Don't demand antibiotics from that doctor, okay? Leave the doctors alone. This is why we have a problem, consumerism and um, the 17-year lag period, which is now a notorious number in the medical literature. It's the lag period from when evidence comes in the medical literature to until you have widespread adoption. I cite, for example, uh, small cavities in children can be successfully treated with this therapy called silver diamine fluoride, which um, gets painted on like nail polish. And it's very effective, it can be reapplied, and the only downside is that it can slightly darken the tooth. Well, if the tooth is coming out anyway, and the kid doesn't care, or it's in the back, or you can't see it, or you know, give the kid the choice, what would you rather have, a drilling, or you know, this thing painted on your tooth for two seconds, um, what do you think they're gonna choose? Uh, rather than sedate them and all this stuff. So my nephew needed, uh, he was told he needs to have a cavity filled. I said, hey, wait a minute. We do research on inappropriate care. We just wrote it. I wrote about it in the price we pay. How about silver diamine fluoride? Finally, we found a dentist willing to put it on after uh, two other dentists had trashed it and you know said, we don't do this and overstated the uh, downsides of it. Look, yeah. we doctors know the nudges, right? If you tell a woman in labor anywhere in the world that a C-section, quote unquote, might be safer for the baby, 100% of women are gonna say do the C-section. If you tell a person anywhere in the world that you've got bone on bone in your knee joint, 100% of people will say, well, just replace it, right? They're thinking about their tire or something. If you tell somebody that minimally invasive surgery to remove a cancer, could spread the cancer because the gas could spread the cancer cells, which is a total myth. Guess what? 100% of people are going to say, don't do it that way. Cut me wide open. We've learned the nudges. And I think, you know, most doctors do the right thing and always try to, but people need to be aware of the mass variation in the way things are done. And they need to know about the other lifestyle treatment options. The most exciting thing I learned about Dr. McCullough in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay, is the movement to treat back pain with physical therapy as a first line therapy and treat gut problems with whole foods and healthy foods and joint problems with yoga and diabetes with cooking classes and meditation as a first line therapy for mild borderline hypertension. There's a movement to address the root underlying causes mm -hmm. of illness. And I think personally, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, when we talk about health, the scientific medical established community is going to be talking about how inflamed you are and how's your microbiome equilibrium. 
the, the future of medicine is in the inflammatory state, which we know is modified by healthy foods. We know there's low inflammatory foods. And we're going to be talking about the microbiome and that equilibrium that can be disrupted with so many things that we've taken for granted, like antibiotics, right? If you get acne as a kid and they say, here, take Accutane antibiotics for six months, they have no clue how that's disrupting the microbiome. And we're now starting to appreciate that that equilibrium in the gut, it's messed up by what we eat, by antibiotics, by you know, a lack of breastfeeding, by C-section rate, all sorts of things affect your microbiome. Uh, and, and there are things to restore and help the microbiome. Why do you think inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease didn't exist before the advent of antibiotics? And why do you think it's still undescribed in poor parts of the world that do not have the Western diet? It's because it must be related to a change in that gut micro, uh, microbiome. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Dressing the foundational cause of disease is what I've been passionate about teaching people for the last quarter of a century on my website. Um, and you had mentioned that uh, the, well, actually cited as example of 17 years being the lag time between a conventionally accepted procedure before it's widely adopted. I thought it would have been consi considerably more, especially if that specific intervention differs widely with the conventional approach. Uh, so, and, and, and in my experience, typically addressing, it does relate to lifestyle changes, primarily diet, but certainly other variables uh, that can positively influence inflammatory conditions and uh, the microbiome. But it was, you also mentioned the, the third leading cause of death was, was medical care. And that was actually an interesting statistic that I delved out of a JAMA article in July of 2000, literally, you know, not over 19 years ago. And it was written by Barbara Starfield, who is an MD, MPH out of Stanford. And uh, ironically, wound up dying from a medical intervention. She had a, a reaction to Plavix and died from that. I think she died from the stroke. But you know, she, she documented 20 years ago that this was, this was the case. That's the third leading cause of death. And, not because, and certainly medical mistakes and errors and, and some of the checklists that you are responsible for developing and implementing on a, on a large scale, just simple checklists like they do in the airline industry can be can make a radical difference in eliminating the, the, many of those errors. But, but the, the primary result is because they just don't understand the foundational cause of what it is. And it's, you know, there's, there's a complex set of reasons and why that is, but it, it ultimately, if you don't understand that, you're, you, a symptomatic therapy is, is certainly not going to cure it. And in many cases, it's going to make it worse because it's not addressing the foundational cause. And, you know, I, the thing is, a lot of doctors, I think, would agree with us on these root cause issues. Mm -hmm. The problem is you cannot pop, pop, possibly practice medicine the way it was intended to be practiced with 10-minute visits. No, right? impossible. It's impossible. Insane. It's insane. I mean, look, just to educate somebody on sleep and its importance. And, you know, I personally believe it's a root cause of certain forms of Alzheimer's, having mm -hmm. chronic poor sleep. And how could support for that? I really, I mean, I really believe it. And I think the evidence is compelling. I think if you don't sleep all night and do a spinal tap on yourself, it's high in the amyloid and tall plaques that you see in Alzheimer's. And your symptoms, if you don't sleep all night, by the way, 
the next day you have Alzheimer's symptoms. Mm -hmm. You're slow and your reaction time and, and so in your memory. So look, um, how can you possibly go over the importance of good nutrition in 10 minutes? That's an hour or two or three or a curriculum. And that's what I love about what you do, educating the public on these important issues. Sleep takes a couple hours to go through the 20 plus things you can do to improve your sleep quality. Um, I love Peter Atia. He's got sort of resources out there on podcasts on how to educate yourself on the real cholesterol panel that everybody should be getting now, instead of the standard. He was a Hopkins surgical graduate, I believe. He was. He was with us here at Johns Hopkins. He was a phenomenal surgical resident. Was told that he had metabolic syndrome. Here, take this statin. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, wait a minute. I'm in my 30s. I'm like an Olympic level swimmer. He has no body fat. He was eating what he was told by the medical establishment to eat forever, like a low fat diet. And he finally educated himself that, look, sugar is one of the big culprits out there. I can take, treat my uh, metabolic syndrome with lifestyle changes, with the right information. And not only is he an incredible health and shape, but he's become one of the biggest advocates in the country for um, eating the right stuff, for fitness, and for getting the right cholesterol testing, right? People should be tested for lipoprotein little a, for apoprotein B and I think C-reactive protein and all this other stuff that we're doing every year, your triglycerides and your total cholesterol and your HDL. I mean, all of that is far secondary in terms of the power of predicting early heart disease. I mean, people that test the right things, that is those panels and know how to manage them are telling me that they've never had a heart attack in their practice of 35 years. I mean, we're learning more and more now about lipoprotein little a Everybody should have it tested for at least once. If it's medium or high, get aggressive treatment, see a lipidologist, and read the New York Times article that says it's called uh, the, the blood test that predicts heart disease. I'm sort of paraphrasing. The blood test that predicts heart disease that one in five people test positive for that few doctors know anything about. And so we're learning more about um, good medicine and what I loved in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay, is that relationship clinics, as they call themselves, are sprouting up around America. They're spending the hours and times, time they need with patients. They're getting deep dives. They're assigning health navigators to you. This is the Iora clinics and the Chen Med clinics and the Oak Street clinics. And they're, they're not perfect, but they're doing a far better job than any sort of futile 10-minute visit broken system. Primary care is completely broken in the United States today. And it's so embarrassingly broken. You almost want to tell people, hey, educate yourself in other ways because this is insufficient to just stop by your doctor for 10, 15 minutes once a year. No, it, it, you, I couldn't agree more. And when I was practicing, I had a whole wide variety of allied healthcare professionals who worked in my practice because I could only spend an hour with them on the first visit and follow-up visits were 15 minutes, but because of the price structure involved, but I could refer them out to my associates who could spend an hour with them a few times a week and get the 10, 15, 20, 30 hours that they needed to change their life. And, and, and you cannot address these with any other approach in my mind. But I, I'm curious because much of what you said in this interview to date is, would, would classify you as a medical heretic in your community. So I'm wondering, 
what your colleagues are viewing from what your, your their viewpoint is and what you're saying. Do you, what type of feedback are you getting? Not only at Hopkins, but in some of the professional meetings that you attend that are that are national. Well, look, I, I get a lot of positive feedback because I think people know that the current system is broken and we've got to push the field. And that is the great American medical heritage of scientific innovation is we fix our problems. And right now we've inherited problems, we've created problems, um, and we need to fix them. And I think people, you know, you look at burnout rates in, in medicine today, 30, 40%, depending on the study. I mean, we have record high rates of burnout among physicians, right? And I think it's related in part to moral injury, the way we indoctrinate our physicians, the way we strip them of their dignity during training, the way we overwork them and sleep deprive them, and the way that we, um, we teach the wrong things a lot of times. I mean, how many times were we expected to regurgitate these molecule names or intermediary steps of the Krebs cycle? Okay, you don't have to know the Krebs cycle from memory to be a doctor and to be a good doctor. Yet we make our trainees and med students and nurses and everyone memorize every intermediate molecule seven, eight, nine times in the course of the medical training. We're not teaching the right things. How about self-awareness? How about the importance of uh, communication skills? How about the research which is not being done because the money has been going to uh, shunted towards certain things? Why don't we have good studies on um, hormone replacement therapy, on, on food? Actually, many people would say we do, and hormone replacement therapy is highly effective for many people and safe and does not cause cancer, as that famous Women's Health Initiative misled the public to believe. Um, where are the big studies on, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, you um, so uh, brilliantly educate people on? The medical establishment has not been funding a lot of this stuff. And I think people are saying, hey, look, we need to challenge the medical establishment. You look at, look at the backlash against the sort of the board testing. You know, the boards wanted to sort of retest everybody super frequently and jack up the prices for doctors. Look at the massive backlash. Doctors are like, look, we're sick of this stuff. We want to take care of people. We don't want to spend our time on things that don't matter. Um, so I think it's an exciting time in medicine. Sure, some surgeons you know, may tell me every now and then, are you a real surgeon talking about you know, over-treatment? You know, uh, we have this series of studies that came out on appendicitis showing that antibiotics is a very effective treatment without surgery, no surgery. Antibiotics alone can be an effective treatment for about 75% of uh, appendicitis cases that are non-ruptured, okay? Do you think surgeons are widely adopting that? No, there's great studies, there's, there are great trials and, um, you know, there's a little bit of sort of a, you know, compartmentalization where uh, surgeons who are embracing it are saying, hey, this is the latest evidence. And those that are not are saying, look, I just, you know, like to take them out. I just think that's the standard way of doing it. And they may not have read the studies. So you do have people that say, look, are you a real surgeon or not? But look, I try to use my platform as a tenured professor at Johns Hopkins doing complex surgical and GI, surgical oncology and GI uh, surgery. 
and our the sort of national um, profile I've been privileged to have after working on the surgery checklist and some other things that we've collaborated on at Hopkins to say, look, we can just collect our paycheck every two weeks as doctors, or we can challenge the system and try to develop a better system. And if there's one theme I've seen in the medical literature over the last 10 years, it's that articles are telling us that we've been doing too much, that the true indications to do stuff are far more narrow than the textbooks have taught us and the previous studies have taught us and the, the medical dogma has taught us. So we're, we're maturing. After all, isn't that what precision medicine is? And I think um, it's an exciting time. I, I love what I'm doing. I love the young people, the students. I love the feedback. And uh, we're all learning together. But I think somebody has got to stop and say, can we look critically at the entire healthcare system and not be beholden to a special interest or stakeholder? Can we talk about pricing failures and not be worried about, is our hospital gonna promote us? Can we talk about over-treatment and not be worried if our professional society will think we're cutting into the revenue of members? Can we be open and honest about healthcare to make it better? And in the book, The Price We Pay, I profile person after person who says, look, we can redesign care to make it better, we just need to start from scratch, and that's exactly what we've done, and look and see about the great results here and how patients love it. Right. Uh, in the book, you talk about taking two of the most common medications that are prescribed in the United States, a uh, proton pump inhibitor called Nexium and a, and a statin drug for cardiovascular disease. Or I'm not sure why it was prescribed for you, but I'm wondering if you'd be willing to explore your journey on what happened with those and you know, what, the, what the current resolution of taking those medications were because they in no way, shape or form treat the foundational cause of the problem. Just, just like the antibiotics for the appendicitis, potential appendicitis would because you know, it does not treat, it may be a better option than surgery, but you know, who knows down the road, you might get C. diff and have to you know, potentially life-threatening infection. So, I mean, I did because you have to treat the cause. If you're not treating the cause, you're just playing games. Yeah. And in the appendicitis um, studies, by the way, they followed people long term and found that if you treat every patient with early appendicitis, that is non-ruptured appendicitis with no stone in the appendix or what we call a fecal lift, um, only 25% will either have it pro progress and need surgery or come back to the hospital, usually in the first month or two and need the surgery, 75% get away with no surgery. The antibiotics are not perfect. Everything has side effects. If there's one take home message from, for every listener, everything has some side effects. But I mean, you talk about an advancement of you know, reducing the amount of surgery that's necessary. Yeah, I do these long operations called a pancreas islet transplant operation, and they can be 10 or 12 hours long. During these operations, what, I, what, what, what is the indication for that? Is, is it to actually restore function in a, in a type one diabetic? It's, we don't do it for type one di diabetes patients currently, but uh, hopefully the science will progress and we'll have a cure for type one diabetes through it someday. But we do it for a condition called chronic pancreatitis, which is a painful ah. condition of the pancreas. And so we can remove the pancreas and preserve the islet cells by transplanting planting them laparoscopically into the blood supply of the liver. It's a, an elegant procedure, takes a long time. And I was getting, as a surgeon, heartburn 
during the procedure because you're standing for a long period of time. You, you know, you eat a little bit beforehand, maybe a, um, some juice in the morning or something. And then I was noticing I was getting heartburn. Well, I went to my GI doctor and I said, look, I've been getting this heartburn. And he prescribed Nexium mostly because I thought Nexium was safe. And I asked for Nexium. I prescribed it. I gave, prescribed a ton of Nexium. And I took Nexium every day. And guess what? The heartburn was gone. Mm -hmm. Then one night I was sitting at home watching the NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. And as I'm slouched on the couch, they said a new study from Johns Hopkins, ironically, <laughs> shows that um, drugs like Nexium and proton pump inhibitors can cause uh, early strokes and heart uh, and kidney failure, stroke and heart disease. And I thought, oh my gosh, no one, I didn't know this and I prescribed it. And, and you know, in medicine, we under un appreciate complications and, and side effects sometimes we're just not aware like I wasn't wasn't aware and that's why I wanted to be very honest about my own personal story I had to stop prescribing Nexium as liberally as I was I got my bottle of Nexium in my medicine cabinet flushed it down the toilet I felt betrayed by I don't, I don't know whom or what and I went back to my GI doctor and I said look is this study real and he said yes it had it increases the incidence of stroke and heart disease later in life I said, well, what else do I take? And he said, <laughs> he said, Marty, there's this thing called lifestyle modification. <laughs> All right. And I did it. It's, it was not that hard, right? A couple changes, it was easy. It's nothing like keto, which is a hard to taste discipline, right? And guess what? It also cured the heartburn. I don't have heartburn. I did make a couple simple changes. And it showed me that we can treat illnesses like heartburn with lifestyle changes a lot of the time. And think about the money that it saved my health plan through everyone paying into my health insurance plan, right? All that money and the risks unnecessary. And similarly, when I had a high cholesterol, you know, it's funny as a doctor to be a patient sometimes. And when I was told your cholesterol is a little high, here's a statin, I just thought, wait a minute, everyone in my family has high cholesterol. No one has had heart disease. Everyone lives to a very long, uh, you know, a long life. Could it be that my ethnicity doesn't fit the mold of that Framingham study of, you know, European, um, you know, uh, background New Englanders? And after talking to enough people, I realized, hey, my cholesterol is not bad. The real cholesterol tests you want to get are lipoprotein little a, apoprotein B, and C-reactive protein. Factoring your family history, your genetic profile, your ethnicity, which the big databases have not uh, really accounted for, and figure out, you know what, maybe people who are of the same ethnicity I am, um, they tend to have higher... Uh, cholesterols, and maybe their body was more designed for, for a starvation state. Maybe they're more designed for long trips. Maybe there's something in the genes. And so I just appreciated that neither of the two medicines that I've been prescribed in my life did I actually need. Now, we don't want to create hysteria. Medicines do save lives. Operations save lives. Uh, if your appendix if you have appendicitis and you're septic, that is you have a systemic infection, 
look, don't, don't shop around, just, you know, follow the guidance. But we want people to be educated and we want to, to let them know about how we think about things uh, as physicians. Yes, indeed. So, and I'm sure you saved many people's lives being a GI surgeon uh, with appendicitis. So I'm, I'm curious what the feedback has been from your colleagues, because these are really viewpoints that are quite contradictory to many conventional physicians, especially at a prestigious institution like Johns Hopkins. Um, well, I would say, or do you think that, that this shifting? Do you, do, you, do you perceive an emerging trend in this direction from your colleagues? Yeah, look, to be very frank, there are old school doctors throughout medicine. There's old school people in every part of healthcare, right? But by and large, the vast majority of people that I can engage with who give me feedback or who I solicit feedback from say, Marty, keep going. The system is broken. Everything from co-pays, deductibles, out of network, price gouging, do something to push the field. All the inappropriate care. I mean, when I was at this meeting with neurosurgeons, this uh, conference of neurosurgeons, they're telling me, Marty, please help us figure out this problem of unnecessary back surgery for back pain. Some people really benefit, but the vast majority of what we see, that's what they told me, is unnecessary. This field is in a crisis state right now, spine surgery. And I think by and large, people have said, you know, um, keep going, you know, keep pushing the field. And I just feel like too often people in healthcare are afraid to speak up. They're scared of what their boss might think of what their professional society might think. And I tell people, look, I'm reminded every day how short life is. In the cancer surgery work that I do with pancreas cancer in particular, I am constantly reminded how life is short. You know, in the Bible it says, from dust we came and to dust we shall return. And I'm reminded that, of that every day. We've got to stand up for what we believe in. The soul longs for a deep sense of purpose in life. We see it in the millennials who yearn for a sense of social justice in everything they do. This is the great sort of heritage of medicine and it's something that is consistent with who we are. And, and I think a lot of people now are saying, hey, can we reevaluate the dogma that we've been taught? Can we take a second look at why we're doing this? And can we change our lexicon? Because the language and the vocabulary we use in medicine is sometimes rigged. It's sometimes not patient-centered. You know, when we talk about, um, um, for example, bad debt or preventable adverse events, that's different from talking about price gouging and medical mistakes, right? So we need to change the language from this sort of sterile language to a language that is patient-centered so we can um, create a more patient-centered approach in what we do. Well, that's very encouraging. In fact, perhaps and from my uh, bias perspective, one of the most encouraging things I've heard you say, because it, it, it suggests the foundational problems that convent because conventional medicine is a big part of the problem because of their viewpoints on this and their their tendency to rely on symptomatic approaches but to hear you say in your position that there is an emerging trend 
that really acknowledges that there's this important need to have a shift, not only in the, the cost structure and, you know, uh, really moving towards some many of the things you recommend, this is the cost transparency and all those other strategies, but that we, we need a fundamental shift to really address the foundational causes. So I, I'm just astounded and delighted to hear that. So we're, we're getting close to the end. I'm wondering if you have any summary points you'd like to make and uh, we can wrap it up. Well, um, keep pushing the field, Dr. Mercola. You know, I appreciate, I've read articles that people have forwarded to me that um, from your website and some really good insights that people just don't know and they need to know. Um, you know, I am constantly amused when we have this very narrow definition of what we accept in Western definition, in Western medicine. So for example, you know, you hear this a lot in medicine and in the hospital, this term, oh, there's no evidence for that. Okay, if there's no evidence in the narrow way that the medical establishment defines evidence with this randomized controlled trial model, that doesn't mean it's not true. That means it's unknown. And if we apply the scientific method properly, something that's unknown means that it could be true or it may not be true. And maybe we can include clinical wisdom, consensus, inferential data, before and after, after observations. These are not non-scientific, illegitimate sources of information. They just don't fit this mold that the medical establishment has handed to us that has a historical background in studying medications, really, where you wanted to give people a placebo and a real medication and see you know, which group improves. But that works for medications, but we can't expect to apply that to surgical techniques. Um, sometimes we can't expect to apply it to asking the question, Does a is, is a parachute effective, right? You can't do a randomized controlled trial. And so the way the medical establishment has handed to us, oh, we only do things that have evidence, Evidence is defined with a randomized controlled trial, and if there's none of those, it's not true. That is a fallacy, okay? We can learn from more than randomized controlled trials, and if it, there's no evidence, it just means it's unknown. It does not mean it's not true, and that's part of the vocabulary change that we need in medical schools and throughout the, the, the medical culture. Certainly important words of wisdom, and I want to extend my deep... Uh expression of gratitude for all the work that you've done and will continue to do in making these uh, really important changes that need to be catalyzed by someone and so, especially someone in a position like yours that has the the, the platform and the uh, position to, to actually make a difference i mean i could say the same things and they would just discredit me and say are you crazy but you know someone of your stature academically in a prestigious institution like hopkins can really make a difference so I'm so grateful that we've got people like you out there that really understand the truth and are pushing to make these changes. Well, thanks so much for having me. Keep up the great work. I love reading your articles and, um, um, and uh, hopefully we can uh, together help change this vocabulary to you know, bring out the best in people and remind people of the tremendous mission of the medical profession and restore the great public trust in the medical profession once again. Yeah, and just to remind people, uh, the your book that you just recently written is The Price We Pay. It's on the right side of your shoulder. And uh, 
excellent, excellent, an excellent read and strongly recommend that people pick up a copy. And uh, is there any other resource you'd like to recommend other than your book, some so website or a positive action or step that people can take? So a lot of people have been asking us, you know, the, the business of medicine is now clear to me from reading the book, what can I do? So at restoringmedicine.org, we've put resources for patients, tips on how to negotiate their, their medical bill or fight back, um, how to challenge your local hospital and board members if um, you perceive that there's something that doesn't live up to the mission of the hospital, something like the hospital suing low-income patients. We give some uh, resources on how to challenge your local hospital. Look, hospitals are there to serve communities. And so you're an important part of the accountability of your local community hospital and I think as we educate people, we're seeing great stuff happening. The Restoring Medicine Facebook page has been very active. Uh, so uh, feel free to connect on social media and stay in touch and keep up the great work. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, hopefully you've got a great success with the book because it, it's one that needs to be read by many people. Thanks so much.